Kneel before Zod! You can't go! All the plants are gonna die! I'm gonna take a bath. Bad dates. I'll alert the media. Boys, keep off the moors. It's evil! Don't touch it! The name's Pliskin. No! Welcome to a very special Vintage Video Patreon pick, where our patrons at the $100 tier are invited to request any pre-80s title they'd like for a custom review from the Vintage Video team, overanalyzing what you've seen and spoiling what you haven't. I'm Patrick O'Reilly. I'm Jesse Bayless. And I'm Richard Wells. And today, Louis Letizia has asked us to review Saturday Night Fever, released December 16th, 1977. It was written by Norman Wexler, based on a story by Nick Cohn, directed by John Badham, and released by Paramount Pictures. Are we a team or are we a crew? <laughs> we're the faces. No, we're the voices. <laughs> yeah. What? I don't think we're anything. Yeah. In 1976, an article entitled Tribal Rights of the New Saturday Night by Nick Cohn was published in New York Magazine. It chronicled the New York disco scene, though Cohn later admitted it was largely fabricated. The central dancer in the article is named Vincent, but that was changed to Tony for the film. Travolta would play a Vincent later for Tarantino. Upon its publication, music producer Robert Stigwood reached out to acquire the film rights. Cohn was commissioned to adapt his own article, but later replaced with Norman Wexler on the strength of his Oscar-nominated scripts for Joe and Serpico. Joe director John G. Avildsen was first in the director's chair, but split from the project after creative differences with Robert Stigwood, at which point John Batham was attached. Apparently, Lloyd Kaufman was a production assistant on the film and nearly stepped away when his longtime friend John G. Avildsen left the project. Lloyd Kaufman is, of course, the founder of Troma Entertainment. Do you guys recall the last time we talked about Lloyd Kaufman? I think he worked as a producer last time we discussed him. Maniac? No, it's much less of a Kaufman film than you would expect. Oh. Like the opposite of what you would expect from Kaufman. Endless love? <laughs> no, what's the most highbrow high art brow? film that we've just discussed recently? Permanent Vacation. No, even more recently. Uh, same time next year? Even more recently. Um, the, the author ladies, no? Even more recently. Oh, Jesus Christ. Okay. Um, uh, three women? Even more recently. <laughs> <laughs> Highest brow. New Yorker films. Oh, um... Progressive women. What is the name of that movie? The, the the woman who's dating the painter guy. More recently. Oh, God damn it. Okay. I don't know. My Dinner with Andre. Oh, uh, right. Come God on, damn it. guys. <sighs> the working title for Saturday Night Fever was initially the same as the article, Tribal Rights of the New Saturday Night, eventually shortened to just Saturday Night, and then extended again to Saturday Night Fever after Badham heard BG's track Night Fever. Night fever, night fever. John Travolta was famous at the time for his work on Welcome Back, Cotter. He insisted on doing his own dancing for the film. Opposite Travolta, Jessica Lange, Kathleen Quinlan, Carrie Fisher, and Amy Irving were all considered for the Stephanie role, which eventually went to Karen Lynn Gorney, who was a full nine years Travolta senior during production and had a difficult time keeping up with Travolta on the dance floor. Donna Pescow was almost turned down for the part of Annette for being too pretty, so she intentionally gained weight and leaned into her Brooklyn accent. Ray Liotta and David Caruso were both considered for the Joey role. Oh, yeah. 
I would like that. I could see them working, but they might also draw too much attention to the characters. I think it's better if the other faces kind of blend in mm. to the club. Yeah, I, I, I stopped keeping track of his friends' names. Yeah, I was like, I, I can't, I can't tell which ones. Yeah, which. Double J barely gets anything to him, other than he seems psychotic. But and Gus, it's like mm-hmm. just stuff happens to him. But I wouldn't pick him out of a lineup. This is one of the first films to utilize the Steadicam. And as we've seen in past reviews, it was operated by its inventor, Garrett Brown. This did use the steady cam? Yes. Like for the opening credits? No, for every single shot. For all these shots? Well, I was. No, for a lot of dance scenes. <clears throat> I was actually going to specifically say that the opening sequence is interesting because it clearly didn't use a steady cam. Oh, okay. <laughs> Of course, it could have been early steady. Maybe, cams, so maybe that's just it. It's just a, it's yeah. pretty shaky. But like, I mean, the opening credits are generally really kind of interesting. They're shot rather uniquely, in my opinion. You are, sure. We're focusing on the feet and and different areas of his body as he's walking down the street. <laughs> but that's interesting to me because it doesn't it doesn't. I think feel the like paint can shot feels steady cam to me. Maybe. The production paused briefly for Travolta to attend the funeral of his girlfriend boy in the plastic bubble co-star diana highland who lost her battle with breast cancer during filming after the film's initial release it was so popular that another version was put in theaters which was re-edited to bring the rating down from r to pg and the strategy more than paid for itself though it seems like it's unanimously derided as a sad shell of the previous film right but i guess it would just be more about the dancing and the competition. Right. Well, All the sex stuff comes out and a lot of the F-bombs come out. I was going to say, I, I really don't feel like there's much in this movie that would Warrants be- Warrants it, yeah. Would, I think this movie, like the full version of it, would be a PG-13 now. Maybe. I mean, if you took some F-bombs out, yeah. In total, it collected nearly a quarter billion dollars worldwide and Travolta got a Best Actor nomination for the part. The film was followed in 1983 by a sequel entitled Staying Alive, which we'll discuss at the end. Entertainment Weekly named it the worst sequel of all time. Screenwriter Norman Wexler took out ads in the trade papers to publicly demand his name not be credited in the sequel. That's how disappointed he was in the story. Based on characters created by... Somebody! Norman Nexler. (laughs) Yeah. There's also a 2008 film called Tony Monero about a Chilean dancer who is obsessed with this movie and wants to be Tony Monero and tries to win a Tony Monero lookalike contest. We start the film with Travolta as Tony Monero strutting down the sidewalk to the tune of BG Staying Alive. He swings a can of paint to the beat in one hand and stops for a couple slices of pizza. The girl selling him pizza here is actually his sister, Anne Travolta. She also shows up in Greece. He pops into a shop to put a down payment on a blue shirt, and the salesman insists that he stick around for a receipt. Hey, wait for your receipt. Please don't, don't trust me. <laughs> yeah, I like that line. I trust you. Don't trust me. <laughs> <laughs> he finally arrives at the paint store where he works, and the owner gestures for him to come through the back door. Evidently, they ran out of a color, so Tony was sent to the nearest shop to buy a replacement, but they want it to appear as though they just took some time finding it. Even though the guy charged Tony eight bucks for the can, he charges the customer 11 for it, claiming he knocked a dollar off the price special for her. I feel like if you, because this, the op, so the opening where he's strutting to staying alive is, is, is kind of iconic. So I, I had never seen this movie. Oh, okay. But I think that that moment is parodied enough that I was aware right. of strutting down the street 
yeah. in this movie to staying alive. But I was not expecting him to be holding a paint can while he yeah. did it. <laughs> Disco stew doesn't advertise. Your fish are dead. I know. I can't, can't get, get them, them out of there. <laughs> the poor woman who's been waiting a half hour for him to return is grateful for the deal. And Tony's boss looks pleased with his salesmanship. This customer, by the way, is being played by Travolta's own mother, Helen Travolta. Every character in this film is a member of Travolta's immediate family. <laughs> we see him deal with more customers, and he clearly has a way with them. All right, how much paint are you planning to do? After these school rooms, I wouldn't paint my wife's ass purple. What color is it now? You want to know what color my wife's ass is? You brung it up? <laughs> Actually, it ain't got no color. Just stripes, them stretch stripes. Reminds right. me of uh, the Great Muppet Caper. What color are their hands now? What color are their hands? Yeah, we caught them red-handed. <laughs> Just kind of stripey. Stripey hands with those stretch marks. The hands grow so fast. What, are, what is that from? <laughs> That's what the, his answer in this movie is. That he's like, oh, matter of fact, it isn't a color. It's just stripey from all the stretch marks. Oh. Tony heads home and starts primping to look good at the clubs tonight. He tries to skip dinner, but Dad drags him downstairs for it. Mom tries to give him crap about his job, comparing him to his brother in the priesthood. The family are quick to argue, and everybody starts slapping whoever they can reach, though disappointingly, Tony never smacks his grandmother sitting to his left. <laughs> everybody else gets hit at least once. Dad is annoyed that for the first time in front of his kids, his wife is slapping him back. He's been out of work for a few months, and he's worried she's grown a backbone. It's okay for him to slap her around, but she slaps him back, and that's like, you've never done that in front of the children. <laughs> when we're alone yeah yeah she apologizes and he swats tony a couple more times for fun we just washed the hair yeah. you know i work on my hair a long time and you, and you hit it he hits my hair tony's friends pull up in a car outside and jokingly pull away without him before backing up again they pull up to a club called 2001 odyssey between the car and the club they challenge each other to blurt out as many racial slurs as possible this is a real club though the rainbow light dance floor was built special for the film. Did and they keep it? They did not keep it, and it was also uh, the subject of a, a recent custody battle between different people involved in producing the film who yeah. said, oh, no, that belongs to me. No, it belongs to me, because obviously you can auction it off for a shit ton. <laughs> the floor. <laughs> Look, it's the sweaty floor from that movie. Did the lights work? Nah. Nope. Nah. I can't get them out of there. <laughs> inside we hear a disco remix of beethoven's fifth symphony tony and the boys take a seat at a table beside the floor or the the faces as they refer to themselves tony is approached by an acquaintance named annette and she leads him to the dance floor they dance to disco inferno after the dance a woman named doreen appears beside their table to simply wipe the sweat off of tony's brow i love to watch you dance tony oh, yeah I love it. I love to watch you dance. I, I, I just just love it, watching you dance. Hey, Tony, listen, uh, do her a favor. Why don't you take her for a dance, huh? His friends encourage him to take her to the dance floor. And the, he does. And he does. Yeah. Yeah. That was nice of him, but he takes her there for about a quarter of a second. The DJ switches to something with a Latin beat, and Tony complains that it's not dance music and just walks away from Doreen. And she wasn't even really dancing with him. She was just hugging him on the floor. The DJ points to a girl who seems to have no problem dancing to this music. What are you talking about, baby? Look at that chip. She's dancing, man. She's moving. Tony stares the girl down for a while, impressed by her moves. He takes a seat at the bar, and Annette reappears, 
to tell him the club is having a dance contest soon, but Tony already knows. He agrees to enter the contest as her partner, but they need to practice a lot, and he reminds her that practicing is not the same as dating. Tony's pal Joey shows up to complain that another friend of theirs is hogging the car they use for sex, and for some reason it's Tony's responsibility to kick the guy out of it. They all watch their friends finish having sex in the car, and then Tony heads back inside. Okay, I guess you're right. The sex scenes are probably non-PG-13, yeah. but they're mostly fogged over with the yeah. windows. Yeah. A drunk girl on the dance floor demands a kiss from Tony and then shouts out loud that she mistook him for Al Pacino. Everyone dances to the rest of the BG's night fever, and we dissolve to Tony's bedroom the next morning. And and this is like, so this is part of like, you know, culture, dance culture and disco culture that I just, I don't understand. Is this, everyone knows all the dance moves. And I know that this is a movie. Yeah. And it's like <laughs> been choreographed. Right. But uh, I don't know why I said it that way, by the way. I liked it. I liked that you sounded it out that way. Uh, but Choreographed. But but I don't know if, if this is something that actually happened. Like, is it equivalent to line dancing? Like, I, I think it's very similar to that. In fact, that last dance that they're doing feels li- almost like a line dance. Oh, it totally right. is. Um, and I think it's just a situation where, you know, they know all the moves because there's only six dances at a time. And then new ones get brought into the rotation and then everyone's like wait hold on what are the moves okay now Mm. i know that one now we'll do this one for a few months and then someone will come and do a different one i mean i feel like that's the same thing now i think that maybe the uh the dance move cycle is just a little bit faster with social media propelling it forward but i think that it's just like somebody makes up a dance and then everybody learns it yeah the dance moves now are like stand on a pile of milk crates or (laughs) drink a gallon of milk I'm not talking about challenges. I'm just I'm talking about... Challenges are the new dances. No. Dancing is a challenge. Dump ice They're, water over your head. People just dance. People just dance to things. It's a thing. Like Elaine on Seinfeld. <laughs> That's how I dance. Tony has posters of Bruce Lee, Al Pacino, and Sylvester Stallone, but admits that he doesn't look like Al Pacino to the mirror, but he doesn't look upset about her mistaking him either way. He wanders to the shower in his tiny underwear and surprises his grandmother with a lot of skin, impersonating Pacino along the way. Ah, Pacino. Attica, 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 Attica. This is by far the best moment of the entire movie. Yeah, she's just like shocked and covers her face. Obviously, this is a reference to Pacino's character in Dog Day Afternoon. We cut to Tony and the boys playing basketball and then shouting a bunch of homophobic shit at a passing gay couple. Back at work, a painter tries to hire Tony away from the store and he turns the guy down. So Tony's manager offers him the weirdest raise I've ever seen. <laughs> First, it's a 250 raise. What does a 250 raise mean? I, mean, I would imagine per hour? Raise, uh, it, he calls it a 250 raise, but what he means is you're getting a raise to $2.50 an hour. No, I, I would say that he's getting a $2.50 increase. That seems crazy rate. to me. No, that would be a lot at that time. Well, I agree, but... I think, I, it, I think it has to literally be, I'm bringing you up to $2.50 an hour. I think, I think he was saying, you now make $2.50 an hour. But I think calling that a $2.50 raise is really weird. Yeah, because I, I was confused by it then. Yeah. And then he adds another $1.50 to it. Right. Which seems like a very large amount to add to something that you probably just went up like 50 cents. Because Tony is already appreciative and the guy thinks he's being sarcastic. (laughs) So he keeps bumping it up until it's a $4 raise. But a $4 raise, 
like four dollars an hour then is like almost 20 bucks now it's like 17 or 18 bucks now so it's not a, it's not four dollars on top of what he was making before no it'd be total but it's just weird that he was like fine i'll double what i'm paying you right now and it's like what like what was he making before probably two bucks probably two bucks yeah and he was giving him a 50 cent raise and then it turned into a two dollar raise like that seems crazy to me but maybe he brings in the customers because he's a pretty face and he knows how to how to talk them and clearly people are already trying to hire him away so he's just like i better not let that happen and he's overcharging people (laughs) yeah yeah he paid for the whole raise by selling that one woman a can of paint yesterday that night tony tries to clear the table after work and dad says to stop doing lady work he tells his dad about the raise and dad thinks four bucks is a shit raise so maybe it's four bucks a month or something four bucks gets added to his annual salary maybe i don't get it <laughs> i worked at blockbuster 25 years later and in the five years i worked there i never got no 250 raise <laughs> let alone four dollars tony's offended about how shitty his unemployed dad is being about a meager raise but dad doesn't notice or care that tony is upset four dollars that night tony and annette meet up at a ballet school for practice she proposes they sleep together while they're training together Tony tells her she has to choose what kind of girl she is. Look, I'm a, what are you anyway? You nice girl or you cunt? I don't know. Both? You can't be both. I mean, that's the thing a girl's got to decide early on. You got to decide whether you're going to be a nice girl or a cunt. <laughs> on the way to the dance studio where they plan to practice, Tony spots the talented dancer girl from the club the other night. After practice, Tony sends Annette home so he can flirt with her. We'll come to know this girl as Stephanie. When he tries to hit on her, she ushers him away so she can practice alone. Tony gets home and his folks look upset. At first, he thinks he's in trouble, but they tell him his little brother Frank Jr. is upstairs, and he rushes to see him. Turns out, Frank Jr. is leaving the priesthood, and Tony doesn't even believe him at first, but then he assumes that it wasn't Frank's choice. You got fired, huh? <laughs> I didn't get fired, I quit. Frank Jr. says their parents are ashamed, and he asks if Tony is, but Tony has no issue with it. He invites Frank to share his room for the night. In the middle of the night, Frank Jr. admits that he only ever pursued the church to make their folks happy. It wasn't a dream of his. Tony admits that he feels less worthless to know that his brother has some flaws. The next day, Tony hassles his buddy Gus as he walks out of a grocery store. He tells him about Frank quitting the church. This moment seems totally pointless, and it barely comes back later. Yeah, I mean, it comes back in the sense that the groceries... They mention the groceries later. But he takes an apple and takes a bite and... Puts it back in the bag. Well, he makes a big deal. He says, give me back the apple after the bite. He's like, well, why do you want it back after you've taken a bite out of it? Yeah. And then he throws it away anyway. Yeah, because apples cost $4. <laughs> they, they just raise the prices of apples. Yeah. This is what happens when you give people raises. The price of everything in the market goes up. Never give people raises. Just charge more for things. Just raisins. That's like raises, right? <laughs> no, I said I'd give you a $4 raisin. <laughs> Here it is. A $4 raisin pay. How is that confusing? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Here's your $4 raisins. They look exactly like George Washington. That's why they cost so much. I don't understand. He threw these raisins across the Delaware. Now I'm really confused. <laughs> he chopped down a raisin tree. The next day, Tony goes back to the dance studio to interrupt another of Stephanie's practice sessions. We get a nice hard look at a boom mic here, but the walls are all mirrors, so what are you going to do? Somehow, Tony's able to sneak up on her, even though she's for sure looking at his reflection in a wall-sized mirror. He invites her out for coffee and suggests they would make great dance partners for the 2001 contest. She tells him she's too high class for him, but agrees to coffee. 
They pop into a restaurant called Fisherman's Corner, and she orders tea instead of food. Stephanie talks up her job and does a bit of name-dropping, mentioning lunches she recently had with Eric Clapton and Cat Stevens. Tony hasn't heard of either of them. Next, she brags that Laurence Olivier was recently in their offices, and again, Tony's at a loss. She mentions that he appears in Polaroid commercials, hoping to remind him, and Tony seems to think he's just a famous camera salesman. <laughs> do, you, do you think that you could get, like, a, a camera from him at, like, a discount? I didn't ask him about a camera. Because you got one already, right? You slap box you. <laughs> That's my favorite line <laughs> in the movie. The, the, this, this is, like, the most uncomfortable date. Yeah. And, at, at, like, I do not get this relationship. Yeah. Throughout the entirety of the movie from here on is like what you clearly have nothing in common with each other. I think he likes her because she represents a high class that he can aspire to. And I, he thinks that she's a ticket to it. I guess. And she likes him because he's John Travolta. He's a dreamboat. But that line that, oh, because you got one already, you sly <laughs> fox, you. I feel like this is Tony pretending to be even dumber than he is. Because he's like, I'm just trying to make her laugh, like, here. I, I feel like he's not actually that stupid. He doesn't think that, oh, she didn't ask for a camera because she already got one. She's so smart. Like, it's just something he's saying to, to make her laugh at him. The usual stuff isn't working, guys. <laughs> <laughs> Where are you from? Originally. She talks about finding a Manhattan apartment and growing as a person. I'm really changing as a person, and I'm growing. You know what I mean? Nobody has any idea how much I'm growing. When's you going to diet? <laughs> Eventually, she gets frustrated that her impressive references don't work on him and starts shitting on his lifestyle until he's legitimately angry about it. After the meal, he offers to walk her home and she turns him down. It seems clear to us that she has nefarious reasons to keep him away from her place, but right now he's just taking it personal. I, I, I just thought she was done with this conversation. Oh, no. I w right away, I was like, oh, I know what's happening here. <laughs> She's like, no, no, no. Don't come to my place. There's things at my place that you can't see. I was certain it was going to be children, but yeah. Oh, like a whole family? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, maybe. Tony connects with the rest of the faces, and they're freaking out because their friend Gus got jumped by the Barracudas, which is a gang and not fish. They all hop into their car to check the Barracudas clubhouse, which is a gang, clubhouse, and not a fish tank. Double Although J. It does have all glass in the front. <laughs> That's true. And it is filled to the top with water. That's not true. <laughs> I made that part up. Double J hops out of the car and peeks through the windows but can't see anybody. They decide to just drive around until they find a pack of barracudas to beat up. Unable to locate any, they drop Tony off at home. <laughs> this, this movie, I, is very frustrating to me. This whole movie. What? Though they're wasting gas just driving around looking well, for fish. Well, it's just like, what an anticlimactic thing! It's like we're gonna beat up the guys. Ah, we couldn't find it. Let's go home. Yeah. It's like, well, what a, great, <laughs> what a great, what a great climax to a scene. But also, this movie. I cannot decide what it wants to be. Yeah, if it's a West Side Story yeah. or if it's a... It's got... It, later on, it goes full, like, Rebel Without a Cause. Yeah. It, it's West Side Story. Then it's got, like, this crazy family drama. I just want to dance and you don't understand me. Dance competition. Brother leading the <laughs> priesthood. It's like, what is the story of this movie? It's all of those together. And yet, none of them. <laughs> yeah, no, no, almost no story has any kind of conclusion. Yeah. Unable to locate any barracudas, they drop off Tony at home. Bobby tells Tony that he'll probably marry his pregnant girlfriend. Over dinner that night, Tony's folks come right out and blame him for Frank leaving the church. They assume he talked his brother out of it. 
Mom assumes that Frank will see the error of his ways and return to the church, and Tony starts screaming that she's delusional and then apologizes for yelling at her. Outside the dance studio later, Tony breaks it to Annette that he's entering the contest with someone else. She's obviously devastated. Oh, Jesus Christ, my fucking mother, now you. Why do you hate me so much? All I ever did to you is like you. He meets up with Stephanie and they practice a bit. He shows her some of his moves that he's self-taught off the TV, and she shows him some of the Latin moves that he's been struggling with. They dance to more than a woman, and the sequence ends with a POV spinning shot like from the lower decks of Titanic in Cameron's film. Later, he walks her down the street and she tells him all about an impressive lunch she had with popular musician and crossword puzzle solution Paul Anka. He tells her that she's full of shit sometimes. <laughs> he asks if she thinks he's intelligent, and she tries to draw a distinction between intelligent and knowledgeable. He asks again to walk her home, and again she turns him down, but he hasn't put together that there might be something there she's hiding. Tony meets up with his brother Frank at 2001 Odyssey. Tony is approached at their table by a dancer named Connie, played by Fran Drescher. Are you as good in bed as you are on that dance floor? <laughs> well, are you? Are you as good in bed as you are on the dance floor? Hey, you never made it in a bed. He takes Connie to the floor and tells her that if she's as good in bed as she is at dancing, then she's a lousy fuck. She claims her partner sent her flowers as proof of her ability. So how come they always send me flowers the next day, huh? You know, some guys don't know a lousy fuck when they got one, you know what I mean? Oh, yeah? But maybe they thought she was dead. <laughs> that's, a, that's a really <laughs> solid burn. Back at the table, Bobby tries to strike up a conversation with Frank Jr. about his predicament. Tony ditches Connie and takes over the floor solo, and everybody gets out of his way to watch. Frank is very impressed with his brother's moves. Bobby asks Frank Jr. if the Pope might give his girlfriend a special dispensation for an abortion, but Frank doubts it. <laughs> I feel like I wouldn't bother doubting it. I would have just been like, I don't know, you're going to have to talk to the Pope about that. <laughs> like, yeah. Good luck. Yeah, Here, here's his address. So... The solo dance moves here, like John Travolta is not a bad dancer. He's, no, no, he's no. a good dancer. But there's nothing impressive about it. But I don't understand this entire movie. There is oh, there's no impressive dancing. Correct. There is nothing about this movie that I'm like, oh man. Yeah. Yeah, of course. He's you know? doing these dances properly, but this is like level one TikTok. Yeah, this is fine. It's perfectly it's perfectly good dancing. But usually, when you do a dance movie, it's because holy crap, these people are amazing at dancing, right? Right. Like, singing in the rain. Like, you're not, like, watching that being like, yeah, you know, uh, I could do that. But that's a movie that's dedicated to that. This movie has too many plot threads, and dancing only seems to be, like, 15, 20% of the movie. Yeah, and spoiler alert, he doesn't even win the dance contest <laughs> at the center of the story <laughs> because he's not that great a dancer because they intentionally didn't give him the best dance moves. But he, he does win the dance contest. No, he doesn't. I know he Not doesn't. In his heart. But he does. All right. <laughs> get to that. Tony is annoyed that Stephanie isn't here yet, and Frank tells him this isn't his scene and he's going to ski daddle. Annette tracks Tony down and says that she's willing to have sex with him now. You could make it now. What? We ain't practicing, seeing each other like you said, so we could make it now. Look, Annette, we make it when I decide, all right? No other time. All right. When I say so, all right? But Annette knows how to puppeteer Tony and threatens to fuck one of his horny loser friends, so he changes his tune and brings her to the car. When he realizes she has nothing in the way of birth control, he backs out on her. Yeah, this, again, this is where I really start to hate Tony. Yeah. I really start to hate him, and I'm no longer interested in anything about him. Yep. 
this whole thing of him asking if she's got anything and she says no and then he says okay fine then just blow me because that's just as satisfying for both of us right yeah uh, like, just give me a blowjob you love blowjobs right <laughs> it's just such like just what is even what is this relationship like you you clearly don't care about her or right. you just want to possess her or keep her from being possessed by anybody else yeah. yeah she's his safety school basically she's like okay well if nobody will come home with me i got a spare apparently this is the first time the word blowjob appeared in a feature film yeah oh really yeah, yeah. Because uh, was blowout was later. <laughs> that's a different. That's a different one. Why don't you just give me a blowout? <laughs> she shoots his tire. <laughs> <laughs> the car goes tumbling off a bridge. Sorry, <laughs> uh. right, I was gonna go really dark and say she's got a terrific scream. <laughs> <laughs> the guys all hop back into the car with them, and they drive out to the Verrazano Narrows Bridge, and we're entreated to David Shire's Night on Disco Mountain a remix of Mussorgsky's Night on Bald Mountain. This is not Brooklyn Bridge, but everybody calls it Brooklyn Bridge in, in all the reviews. They pull the car over in the middle of the bridge and all the faces hop out except for Bobby and take turns balancing on the support beams along the side of the bridge and redirecting a row of giant spotlights, which I feel like would be super hot, hot if yeah. they were real. Yeah. And then, can you dig it? I knew that she could. She looks more annoyed than worried as she waits in the car until she sees Double J take a flying leap to a guardrail and then lose his grip and fall. Joey and Tony jump down to save their friend and Annette rushes to the railing to find that they've all pranked her and merely jump down to a lower platform and not the water. You fuckers! Get it, dig it. I, I knew that you could. could. <laughs> the next morning, Frank packs up to leave, but on his way out, he advises Tony to pursue dancing to wherever it leads. He tells Tony he left a souvenir in his room, and Tony finds Frank's collar. He tries it on, but then lifts it like it's a noose. He meets with Stephanie at the studio for practice. Afterward, they pop over to White Castle for lunch, and she brags about meeting David Bowie and Joe Namath. Back at his job later, Tony requests the day off so he can help Stephanie move to her new Manhattan apartment, but he's turned down, so he tells the boss to fuck himself and walks out. Tony is borrowing Bobby's car, and as he hands it off, he tells Tony he thinks he might have to marry Pauline because she refuses to get an abortion. Tony can't hang around to chat, and as he drives away, Bobby starts crying alone on the sidewalk. When they arrive at her place, they're greeted by her ex, an older guy named Jay Langhart. He tells her that he's leaving the furniture since she picked it out anyway, and she introduces him to Tony. Apparently he wasn't supposed to be here. He's condescending to her, and he picks on her cultural awareness in the same way that she picks on Tony's so she's just paying it backward. Later, she tells Tony that he's a record producer transitioning to film producing, which makes him essentially a stand-in for this film's producer, Robert Stigwood, who we've already discussed on the show for his work producing the soundtrack and film Times Square in season one. Tony wants to know if they're still a thing, and Steph insists they're not. She gets very defensive about her prior relationship because this man evidently lifted her up from a lower class, and she starts crying, when Tony realizes he's been unfair in his judgment of her. Mm, maybe what? not. <laughs> you don't think he's been unfair? I mean, she's been she's been pretty awful to him. To Tony? Yeah. Yeah. She just makes fun of him. I don't know. I think she's I think she's 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 just as bad as this dude that is to her as you say, like that she's paying it backwards. I just I 
I, I think she's I think she's I think she's a jerk. I think she's mean. Yeah, to him no, she is a jerk. Yeah. To try and make herself feel better. He takes her to a bench looking out at the Verrazano Narrows Bridge. He seems to have the dimensions and history of the bridge memorized, but he embellishes a bit, claiming a man was buried alive in wet cement during its construction and that his body is still in the bridge's foundation. First of all, they would have fished the guy out of there, or at least try to save him, but even if they knew he was dead, it's probably not great for the structural integrity to leave a yeah. rotting corpse in a concrete bridge. Because <laughs> it'll eventually just be a cavity yeah. in there. Now, so, I'm trying to figure, okay, I'm trying to figure out how this guy dies in a bucket of concrete essentially like on he drowns in it yeah he drowns in it or yeah. he gets boiled alive no he no, would no. drown it's like you know one of the big huge concrete footings that's probably like 10 feet in diameter and probably about six feet deep and do and and, and, and okay so is concrete thick enough that you would fall th- or not or or liquid enough that you would fall through it yes yeah you wouldn't just kind of like it's not like kind of goopy quicksand that you're sitting on you know, on top of and I think there's struggle. a lot of water in it to start. Okay. I, I think there's enough that he would at least be fully submerged in it because of how deep it is. See, I figured it'd be exothermic enough that, that you that you might be burnt before you suffocated, but that's if you don't go completely under when you drop it. You're thinking like a non Newtonian kind of like like you just you would smack it before you sink in? Yeah, I just like I'm just trying to think of 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 the thickness of the concrete here, and I'm like, well, you'd slowly fall in, but you might also be burning to death because this is so hot. Maybe I don't, I don't think concrete is poured hot, is it? I don't well, think it's so. Not, it, 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 it's You're hot. not asphalt. You're thinking of asphalt. No, 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 no. I'm thinking of the the chemical reaction of when it's curing. And oh, it becomes hot. Okay. And I assumed that it'd be curing when he fell into it. I think the curing happens at the surface, though. I don't think it happens throughout the whole fluid. Well, I don't know. I disagree with that. But I i mean, I think it's valid that it, if it were deep enough and liquidy enough and he went completely in, he'd suffocate before he burned. Yeah. I mean, obviously, he'd probably try to keep his mouth closed and keep <clears throat> the cement out of it. But eventually, he's not going to be able to control that. Yeah. And his body's going to force him to inhale yeah, and yeah. he's going to suck in a bunch of concrete into his lungs. But now I want to see a bridge made out of oobleck. <laughs> It's just like, you better cross it quick. I was going to say, just keep driving. Don't stop. (laughs) (laughs) Three men did die during the bridge's construction, but all from falls, none from cement droning. Tony stops by the paint shop to collect his last paycheck, and his boss tries to bury the hatchet and offer him the position back. He points to other co-workers who've spent decades working the store, and as overjoyed as Tony is to have his job back, he looks mostly terrified at the prospect of staying here well into middle age. Back at the dance studio, Tony finds Stephanie dancing with Pete, the guy who runs this place, and tells him to scram. What are you doing? That guy's the biggest cunthound on Bay Ridge. Oh my God, I've been in serious danger. Just don't fucking joke, Stephanie. That guy's just a fucking sleazy whore. This is her best line in the movie, <laughs> when she's just not taking him seriously at all. Yeah, but I like how he refers to him as a whore. Right. I was like, yeah, there you go. <laughs> Equal opportunity. Tony is so angry that she doesn't take the warning seriously that he just turns around and walks out. I also think it's interesting because I was pretty sure that guy was gay when <laughs> when we first saw him. No, because the-, the first thing he says is like, I, I fuck 65% of the women who come in here. Oh, yeah, never mind. He does say that. Annette finds Tony outside and waves a handful of condoms in his face like that's all that stood in the way of sex between them. He turns her down yet again. Oh, Jesus. The faces stop by the Barracuda hangout again, and it's packed. 
Bobby tries to drive them away, but Double J takes over the wheel and pedals from the passenger side and crashes the car through the front of the store into the Barracuda Den. All Bobby can think about on their way through the wall is his impending marriage. He stays in the car while the other faces start laying into everyone inside. A Barracuda dives through the window at Bobby and he reverses back out onto the street and loops around the building, skidding up again out front just as his friends are coming out. We cut to the boys at the hospital visiting Gus, and Gus waits until now to admit that he has no idea if the Barracudas were responsible for his mugging. No. I, I said it probably was. Don't be right. on ladies now. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. For that. You said it probably was. That's yeah, right. That's I said what you probably. told us. I said probably because I wasn't sure, you know? I mean, it could have been a Spanish Stupid fucking bastard. Bobby is furious to have risked his future on a guess, but the other guys point out that he barely risked anything because he never got out of the car. On the way to the dance contest, the guys give Bobby more shit about chickening out on the fight. Stephanie is surprised to see Tony's injuries outside the club. Oh, I cut myself shaving. With a switchblade, huh? Stephanie and Tony do their dance for the contest to the tune of More Than a Woman. On the sidelines, Annette is borrowing several pills from Joey to get messed up with. Travolta's white suit from this film, or one of two screen-used suits, was bought at auction by Gene Siskel, who considered this his favorite movie of all time. What? That's okay. correct. I think it's an odd choice too, but it yep. was his favorite. <laughs> Do you guys recall when we saw this scene parodied in the past? Yeah. What was that? I think we already mentioned uh, Airplane, right? Did we mention it already? No. Oh, we didn't? Oh, yeah. Yeah, this movie. Airplane. Airplane, yeah. <laughs> the last dance team takes to the floor and Tony's friends shout some racist shit at the Puerto Rican couple. Tony can tell immediately that they're better dancers. Ooh, Jesus Christ is so fucking good. The Puerto Rican couple come in second and Steph and Tony win the grand prize, but Tony is pissed because he knows the only reason he won is because the club is as racist as he and his friends are. He walks across the dance floor and hands the trophy and cash prize to the celebrating second place team. Travolta won a dance contest in Greece and later loses one in Pulp Fiction. Tony drags Stephanie to the car and tries to have sex with her, but she's not interested. He ignores her pleading for him to stop and knees him in the crotch before running away. Yeah, good for her. Joey comes out of the club making out with Annette, and Tony flips out on all the guys. Boxer, what is it, man? What the fuck is it? You don't give a shit about her. Joey and Annette fuck in the back seat while the guys drive down the street, and then he and Double J trade places. Annette is begging them to stop, and Tony sits in silence in the front seat because he's an asshole monster. They drive back to the bridge and do their stupid balancing act again. When Tony and Annette are left alone in the car, he blames her for getting raped by his friends. You proud of yourself, man? Is that what you wanted? Good. Now you're a cunt. This time, Bobby joins the guys on the edge of the bridge, and he starts to scare them a bit. I'm not kidding, Bobby. Get down from here. I'm all right. I'm all right. It seems like he's mostly trying to prove that he's not a coward like they all think. They try to crawl toward him before he does something stupid, but Bobby manages to fall, unclear if by accident or on purpose. Well, it, like I said, I, I compared this to Rebel Without a Cause. Right. For like, you know, it's like... Did he just drive off the cliff or <laughs> was it an accident? <laughs> well, no, I mean I mean more that uh, his friend later on. That sure. Like, like, you know, because now he's hanging around with the girl and now he's not the center of attention anymore. And Bobby is like, I'm going through some shit. No one's paying any attention to my problems yeah. here. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, yeah, so I, I feel like maybe he didn't fall on purpose, but I don't think he cared if he did it or not. I don't know. He screamed the whole way down. But then they say that you, when you jump, you change your mind 
on the way. Like, ever they they did some study of everybody that jumped off the Golden Gate Bridge, and like, of the survivors, like ninety nine percent reported that they immediately regretted it the second that they were free of the bridge. Mm. Well, that's true about just about every suicide attempt that is failed. We cut to hours later. The cops have been called, but they haven't found anything. They ask if it was a suicide or not. Ways of killing yourself without killing yourself. Joey takes Annette home, and Tony walks directly to Stephanie's place from here. It's light by the time he gets there, and surprisingly, she answers the door. First time I ever let a known rapist in my apartment. Hey, look, I just, I just stay right here, right? So that way you don't think that I'm gonna, you know, jump you or nothing. Tony doesn't tell her what happened last night, but he does tell her that she has inspired him to move here and find work in Manhattan, to get out of his parents' apartment and grow up a little. She seems to believe that he's capable of all these changes. He tells her that if they can't be lovers, he'd like to at least give being friends a chance. He'll need friends in a new city. Think you could be friends with a girl? Could you stand being friends with a girl, huh? The truth? Yeah. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I could try. That's all I could say, Stephanie. I could try. They shake on it, and the BG's How Deep Is Your Love turns back up as we scroll credits over a freeze frame. The end. I think the answer is no. No, he cannot just correct. be friends yeah, with the girl. That is the correct <laughs> answer. And if if any of the red flags that she's experienced weren't weren't flying from the few times that they've gone out together, he should be he should must realize that he has nothing in common with her other than he finds her very attractive and a good dancer. Yeah. Those are the only two qualities in her that he cares about. And look at the the mess that he's left in his wake too. Like Yeah. Annette is going to be just a complete mess. You know, a friend of theirs killed himself on the bridge. He talked and, his brother out of the priesthood. And she got raped by everyone else that she can talk to except for Tony, who's leaving the city. And also, all of his friends are probably going to get killed by barracudas in the Yeah. Day. Like, they just set off a time bomb. Yeah. Everybody's going to get killed. Anyway. <laughs> So that's that's what happened in Saturday Night Fever. What a weird movie. Yeah. yeah. Uh, there's nothing resolved. Like there's nothing resolved with his family right. or the brother. Uh we never find out anything about the barracudas, like you said. They're probably just going to kill him. They might yeah. not even be the people that beat the other guy up. I'm yep. sure they're not. So they'll be totally justified in killing Joey and and Double J and Gus. We we never even meet the Pauline, the girl that Bobby got the pregnant, pregnant, girl? pregnant yeah. yeah, like we never the, even the, meet her. The we, baby that will grow so up without consequences, a parent now. Yeah, the father just jumped off a bridge rather yeah. than facing raising his child. Yeah, yeah. Uh, thumbs down. <laughs> this movie is a thumbs down for me. So, in '83, Staying Alive was released. That's the sequel to the film. It's a direct sequel, and it picks up with Tony auditioning for broadway performances as a dancer is it travolta yeah yeah it's travolta back. he comes back um and we have uh, it's directed by sylvester stallone he's on the cover looking like bruce lee or something yeah it's uh it's an interesting film and i as much as it's the worst sequel ever made i enjoyed parts of it and i actually kind of liked it how did you feel about this one though i liked it i like saturday night fever it's saturday night fever gets a thumbs up from me Okay. But Staying Alive would probably also get a thumbs up from me. <laughs> I actually, there's parts of Staying Alive that I like better than this movie. Yeah. Because I think the Less second rape. film, <laughs> there's Less, there's no rape. That's rape. Uh, and also they, uh, they kind of set up a, a similar situation where Tony has 
the safety girl who he can always count on waiting up for him and then he has the girl that he dreams about that he that he would rather be with and the girl is also dismissive of him the same way that the girl is in this story but he makes the right decision in that right. movie there and so go. it's a it like they turn it around and also we see the repaired relationship with his mother where you know he checks in on her and goes to her house and talks to her they have a friendly relationship beyond the first film which is nice to get that kind of closure closure to it yeah his mom mom or the one he sold his paint to <laughs> both <laughs> he swings by and he's like that looks great no she was she was actually she she died like a year after she did the appearance in the first film oh, travolta's really? actual mother so she never saw staying alive the poor no woman. she never saw staying alive <laughs> but she saw saturday night fever and that was probably you know pretty close to the peak of his fame i mean he followed it up with greece immediately so that's a that's a one-two punch for travolta yeah um so she got to see him succeed but uh but yeah um, that that's her only credit too it's just that that one cameo in uh in saturday night fever also the the title of the second film obviously comes from the bg song from the first film which is also commonly used as as a reminder of the beat that you should be performing cpr at yeah now these these bg songs are original to the movie some of them are and some of them okay. are previously released tracks but a lot of them are original to the film well they're really freaking good they are good mm-hmm. yeah they're every so every good. song here is great the, the the soundtrack alone makes me want to give this movie a thumbs up because every song in this movie is like yep that's great i, I would listen to that correct well it's like uh wayne said the beatles didn't write songs everyone liked they left that to the Bee Gees. <laughs> <laughs> Richard, what do you think? Thumbs up, thumbs down. Oh, it's a thumbs down for me. Really? I, okay. I, I, because I hate by by halfway it's through too this, cluttered. Well, it's too cluttered, and and by the halfway through the movie, I hate Tony. I just hate him. Yeah. And I don't care if he loses the competition because he deserves it. And I, I feel horrible for Annette. Like this, this poor girl. Uh, I, it's just like I, the, no, I, I, I feel nothing, and and. T- for this movie to be so celebrated as it is, is like this like cultural That's the icon. weird thing. I, I feel like that's the weirdest thing for me is that I could never have guessed what this movie was like based on its fame. Right. You know, that I would, I you know, I'm like, okay, yeah. You don't expect it to be as bunch dark of, as it there's is. There's a bunch of disco dancing. There's, you know, and then, and, you know, and I'm three quarters of the way through this movie i'm like what the hell is this movie like it's just like nothing happens and then in the last 30 minutes a whole bunch of shit happens and you're like what what is this i could have taken an hour out of this movie and been totally fine like you wouldn't have lost any element of this movie and it's not even that long Mm -hmm. i mean like it's it's what an hour 40 or something like that it's not even crazy long i I, i'm curious if this love and affinity from the movie comes from the pg-13 version or the pg version i know a lot of people thought that was the only version and didn't know that there even was an r-rated version until it was re-released on home video in like the 90s yeah i, I feel like that's maybe that's what this movie is about so is it, it's more beloved when it's less rapey mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. because it got so much television play because it had that pg version that it was just because it was available kind of like how people watch uh, it's a wonderful life because it was public domain and it was just they could put it on tv all the time and so people just became mm. like obsessed with it because they'd seen it so often well and i think that 
just like I said, I mean, the, the, the soundtrack, all of the music alone is enough to, to make, I feel like, to make this movie beloved. But I think the television version had rights issues with the music oh, and really? they end up swapping out some of the songs. Mm, interesting. But regardless, it's it's a it's a it's a strange movie. So it's a reluctant thumbs up from me. But it's not reluctant at all for me. I think this is yeah. A but it's you up. know, I think it, I would I would tell people to to watch it just to experience this. <laughs> yeah. Our director here was John Badham. He also directs Blue Thunder, War Games, Short Circuit. I met him when he came in to direct an episode of A&E's The Beast, starring Patrick Swayze. I was also tasked with buying a Sony TV from the studio store and taking it out to his house for installation. Later this season, he helms Whose Life Is It Anyway? Writer Nick Cohn wrote the story, Tribal Rights of the New Saturday Night. Obviously, he gets character credits on Staying Alive, the film's sequel. The other writer here, the one who adapted it into a screenplay, was Norman Wexler. He previously wrote Joe, Serpico, and later writes sequel Staying Alive. He also wrote Schwarzenegger vehicle Raw Deal. He also went a little crazy and threatened to assassinate Richard Nixon and was apparently arrested for it because it was a credible threat at the time, or it was deemed a credible threat. The music here comes from The Gibbs. Uh, Barry, Maurice, and Robin. Barry Gibb is the lead singer of the Bee Gees and the host of the Barry Gibb Talk Show. <laughs> uh, cinematographer Ralph D. Bode. We've seen his work in Coal Miner's Daughter, Dress to Kill, and Raggedy Man. Later, he lights Uncle Buck and Don Juan DeMarco. The editor here was David Rollins. He previously cut H.R. Puff and Stuff, or Puff and Stuff, I think the movie is called, just Puff and Stuff. And right after this, he cut The China Syndrome. We've seen his work in Urban Cowboy. And he's back next season to cut Soup for One. That's the name of the movie. Soup for One. Oh. It sounds like another dinner with Andre scenario. Yeah. Well, and I was thinking that was more philosophical when it was. It's like to cut soup. And I'm like, what are you talking about? <laughs> Cutting soup. <laughs> Later, he cuts Firestarter, Back to School, Police Academy 4, Sidekicks, Baby's Day Out, and Mr. Magoo. I feel like those last two are kind of the same movie. <laughs> <laughs> Baby's Day Out and Mr. Magoo are both like Just a person around. walking across a yeah. steel girder as a building's coming <laughs> <Right>. together. <laughs> John Travolta played Tony Manero. This was definitely a breakout role for him, and it was followed by another celebrated turn as Danny in Greece. We've seen him so far in Urban Cowboy and Blowout. Urban Cowboy is a lot like this movie. But in the rest of the 80s, uh, his career kind of fizzled a bit until the Look Who's Talking series, and then a return to form as Vincent Vega in Tarantino's Pulp Fiction. He stayed busy as an A-lister for the rest of the 90s in films like Get Shorty, Broken Arrow, Phenomenon, Michael, Face Off, Battlefield Earth. Everybody's favorite. That was not the 90s. Everyone's favorite film. That was not the 90s? It had to be 2000, right? I don't know. Swordfish. I think yeah, those were both Swordfish. the 90s. Late, late 90s. Oh, I think Battlefield Earth was early 2000s. A lot of Dutch angles. That was, your Earth is two thousand. Yeah, because okay. that was like, and that that was like the the start of his downfall. Maybe. And Swordfish was two thousand one. Okay. Uh, he also resurrected Divine's Edna Turnblad for the two thousand seven Hairspray remake. Karen Lynn Gorney played Stephanie. She didn't act again after this film until a background role in nineteen ninety one's The Hard Way. Not clear why. She she went back and and formed a dance school. And taught there for a long time. She didn't do a lot of Is acting. Is there dancing this. in the hard way that may, she maybe would have been in? I don't know. I haven't seen that one. Barry Miller played Bobby C. Later, he's Raymond Rothman in Voices. He's Ralph in Fame. That's the uh, the comedian character who's obsessed with uh, Freddie Prince. 
Um, he's Richard Norvick in Peggy Sue Got Married and Jeroboam in Last Temptation of Christ. Joseph Cali played Joey. He's Pinky in Voices. He's Jerry DeSalvo in The Competition and much later Nick the Nose in Suicide Kings. I think in The Competition he even makes a joke about how like, yeah, I'm kind of an idiot, but I think I'm going to be like a John Travolta type or something like that. Mm. Like he, he makes a joke about how he's going to be big like John Travolta. And he says that to Amy Irving, who was uh, in Carrie with John Travolta. Paul Pape plays Double J. He has mostly voice work credits and ADR and loop group type stuff. Um, not a lot of named characters. Donna Pesco played Annette. She's possibly best known as Eileen Stevens, matriarch of the Even Stevens family. She also has some TV directing credits on shows like Harry and the Hendersons, Even Stevens, and That's So Raven. That's not what she is best known for. Definitely Even Stevens. Definitely not what she is known for. All right, what's she best known for? I actually don't know the character's name, but she is the mom. On Mrs. O- Sugar Cubes. She is the mom on Out of This World. <laughs> yes. The wife of a pile of sugar cubes, <laughs> right? It's the dad is the sugar cubes. The dad, yeah, the dad is a, a is a inverted stack of sugar cubes. He's like this. <laughs> Perfect. Julie Bavasso played Flo. She returns to play the mom again in sequel, Staying Alive. She's also Vinny's mom in My Blue Heaven. She was Phil's mom and Willie and Phil last season, and she's back next season as Maureen Rooney in The Verdict. Martin Shakar played Frank Jr. We saw him last as John Fremont in The Children. That's the, uh, I think he's the the final guy. His wife is pregnant and mm. smoking, and she's pregnant with a weird black-eyed, black-fingered children character. Right? They have black fingernails. Yeah. That's how you know that they're bad. Sam Coppola played Dan Fusco. No relation to the Coppola Coppolas, but he did appear with Pacino and Serpico, and he's made multiple appearances on Sopranos. Denny Dillon played Doreen. She's back next season in Author, Author. Burt Michaels played Pete. He was Snowboy in West Side Story and Chimney Sweep and Mary Poppins and Gimbal's Security Guard in Spielberg's remake of West Side Story. I wonder how many people he brought back for that. Probably yeah. as many as he could find. Robert Costanzo played Paint Store Customer. That's the guy who was painting his wife's ass. He's in City Slickers, Die Hard 2, and Total Recall. Robert Wheel, or Weil, played Becker. He's Mailroom Boss in Hudsucker Proxy and Bobo in Moonstruck. Shelly Bat played Girl in Disco. She was Dulcie in Loving Couples. Charlotte in Honky Tonk Freeway and Girl, presumably Dead Girl, in True Confessions. Fran Drescher played Connie. We've seen her so far in Hollywood Nights and Gorp. She's back this season in Ragtime. And later she's in Spinal Tap, UHF, The Nanny, obviously. And more recently she was Eunice, the Bride of Frankenstein in the Hotel Transylvania films. Murray Mostyn played Haberdashery Salesman. He's Iris's timekeeper in Taxi Driver and Oscar in Mean Streets. Anne Travolta played the pizza girl. She's part of the wedding party in Urban Cowboy. She's back with her brother later in Two of a Kind, Perfect, and Swordfish, among others. Helen Travolta was the lady in the paint store. This is, as I mentioned, John's mother. She passed away a year after the film was released. Ellen March played bartender. She was Becky in Urban Cowboy. Randy Feelgood played a dancer. He's uncredited as Zoot Boogaloo in Back to the Future. Who's Zoot Boogaloo, Richard? Uh, I imagine he's one of Biff's crew? Zoot Boogaloo. There's no wiki for him? He's the only one with no wiki. (laughs) Yeah, uh, I don't know. I I would assume that he's one of Biff's crew. Yeah, that makes sense. Adrian King is also a dancer uncredited in the film. 
We saw Alice as the first final girl of the Friday the 13th franchise. And she returned for Friday the 13th Part 2 for the cold open to get stabbed in the eye. Um, But yeah, this is before Friday the 13th for her. She was in this film. I think that's everything for Saturday Night Fever. Thanks again to Louis Letizia for their generous contribution to the show. If there's any title you'd like us to review, our top Patreon tier includes a custom review of any pre-1980 title. If you have any thoughts you'd like to share, we are Vintage Video Pod on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Letterboxd. Or as I've said before, you can find each of our full movie rankings for the year. We can also be found at VintageVideoPodcast.com. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time when we'll be discussing whatever you choose. We leave you now with the trailer for Saturday Night Fever. Told me I was good in my life. Two, two, twice. This race today and dance and dance at the disco. Well, I mean, I could dance with you, but you know, you're not my dream girl or nothing like that. Are you as good in bed as you are on that dance floor? Those are all you make it with some of these chicks. They think you gotta dance with them. He's very good, yeah. He's the best. Hey, man, he's great. He's the king out there. John Travolta in Saturday Night Fever. She can dance, you know that? She's got the wrong partner, of course, but she she can dance. Okay, listen, I like it. We could dance together. That's it. We could just dance together and uh, nothing more, nothing It's, it's a short-lived kind of thing. But I'm getting older, you know, and, you know, I feel like, I feel like, you know, so what? I'm getting older. Does that mean, like, I can't feel that way about nothing left in my life, you know? Is that it? Ah!